0: You are listening to the message by Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. I'm going to talk about resurrection power as a problem-solving power. And, of course, the power of the resurrection is the ultimate problem-solver, but In light of what I want to look at here, an introduction, Mark chapter 16, verse 1, says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Now, I think many believers visualize and accept the fact that Jesus died for them on the cross, uh, they can understand that he paid their price and suffered terribly. They have a mentality of that, and it's an important part of salvation. It's important that we identify with the sacrifice, with the death. And many believers uh, have a understanding that Jesus died, and in fact, they even memorialize that by having crosses in their house with an actual figure of Jesus still pinned on there, which is a moment frozen in time that is symbolic of his suffering, but far greater than the symbolism of his suffering is the fact of his resurrection. And a lot of believers have a difficult time with the idea of his resurrection power and how it applies to their lives on a daily basis. Uh, People have trouble accepting suffering, the suffering of Messiah. And also for ourselves, the Bible says that unless we take up our cross and follow him we cannot be his disciples which means that we have part also in suffering and people don't like to hear that message but it's important that we consider that we're going to have trouble in life and really the solution to the death and the burial of Jesus was the resurrection of the same and so it is for us whenever we go through any trials any issues we need to understand that there will be a resurrection both here now problems will be solved if we put our trust in Christ Uh, Yet, there are a lot of people who are very negative. In this message, uh, we're going to concentrate on Mark 16, and we find the two Marys and Salome honoring, really, the death of Jesus and mourning over their loss. And so their focus is on problems and not solutions. So as we go into this, I want to look at two realms, and the first one is problematic thinking. As we go into the story from verse 2 onward, it says, Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now, it says that they asked each other. The two Marys, Salome, they have all that they need to embalm if you would or to use these fragrances for jesus and to wrap him to tend to the body in these last moments of of their time before he begins to rot i mean they literally are just trying to uh, spend because they miss him dearly but they're asking each other because a problem immediately surfaces and that is that they do not know how to roll the stone away and conversations with those that surround us can go one of two ways on a productive path or a depressing, destructive path. Uh, sometimes we focus on the cannots and not on the cans. Uh, sometimes we look at the problems, and it's okay to f- confront your issues and problems in life, but be careful not to be overly focused on problems. Uh, choose your conversation topics and conclusions. Uh, in the next verse, we see this start to change. At first, they have this problematic thinking, but then they go into positive power thinking and there's some keys in this verse it says in verse four it says but when they looked up they saw that the stone which was very large had been rolled away so they have a problem and this is what we have to grasp they had a problem that they were focused on but technically there was no problem Because it was already solved. Have you ever had an issue or a problem that was solved, but you were ignorant to that fact, and you were still perplexed and worried and concerned? You even lost sleep over it. And it's so embarrassing when you find out that the solution came days before you found out, and you were miserable. And so it kind of gives you an image into the reality of problems. They're not real. In other words, the emotional effect of a problem on us. Now, this is what Jesus addressed in the realms of worry. And he said, don't worry. Uh, how can you change anything with worry? Uh, worry is, is one thing. Action is another. If you spill milk, you clean it up. Now, I don't have to worry about it. If something goes wrong, the other day I, was o- I opened the closet and a bag fell out and hit a vase and that had a plant in it, it was full of water, which of course fell behind the ninth stand. Never falls in front. It's always somewhere awkward. It poured all the water out under the bed behind you know that moment it's going into the 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 um parquet floors and in up into the wood there's bags under the bed we use under the bed for some storage so we have some things there so i'm having to run it i could sit there and just hold my head and say oh no look at the problem but instead of course i quickly immediately grab a towel throw the towel back there Behind the ninth stand, whereby it begins to absorb the water, and I actually watched the water go back into the towel. So the solution was there. Sometimes, though, uh, and I raised my kids to believe that don't be be solution oriented, not problem oriented. That instead, if you come to me, and I told them early on, if you spill something, you break something, something happens, and you come to me whining about it, and you've not taken any steps to fix that situation, you're going to make me mad. So don't just spill something, clean it up. You can come back later on and tell me, Dad, I spilled some milk, but I immediately cleaned it up. That's okay. I would like to know because if you spilled enough milk, I may need to know about it so I can buy more milk, whatever the case is. But I believe that we have a choice in life, either be focused on the problems or focused on solutions. Even if we don't have the solution yet. Now they're worried about this, but the problem that they were worried about was already solved. And as they entered the tomb, it says in verse five, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. I I like first that it says they looked up. So there's some elements here, meaning that sometimes if we're not looking up, the Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. The Bible talks about the fact in Colossians 3:1, if ye then be risen with Christ, Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, I like that it says, if you then be risen, in light of what today is, Resurrection Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. But he rose as the firstborn among many brothers, that we would rise also with him. And I like that it says, if you then be risen. And the tense here is if you're already risen. And so this is speaking about a spiritual resurrection, a resurrection of your old man that's been crucified and died, yet you live, yet not you, Christ lives through you. And so life lived, if we want to solve problems and we want to get out of a problematic thought process, we need to always think resurrection. If you're risen, think that way, is what Paul is saying. If you are risen with Christ, then you look up. And I like that they looked up in that former verse. So they entered, they said, oh no, because why would they not see? They were already there close enough to see that the stone was removed, but instead they were looking down because when you're depressed, you look down. So depression and worry didn't help anything. But when they finally did look up as they approached, then they saw. I think if they had been looking up the whole time, they would have seen from a greater distance that the stone was rolled away. They may not have even realized yet that there could possibly be a problem. I find the more time that we look up, the less problems we will realize in life. And there's, There is a realization of a problem sometimes, or problems are invented when we think in negative ways. And That's all I'm saying by this is as they looked up. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. Keep your sights set above. Peter was doing great on the water. Everything was fine as long as he was looking at Jesus. But when he looked around at the wind and the waves, he sank in the water. So it's about keeping our focus daily in life on Christ. It's already rolled away. And and this is a surprise to find in God every day that, you know, my greatest problems were solved long before I ever encountered them. I believe there's no problem that can possibly come to my life that God has not already solved. How many of you could dare to believe that? No matter how great it is, he has a solution. And I believe that for myself. I think what he meant on the cross when he said it is finished was you know, lately I've been um, messing around again with the Rubik's Cube, working on my speed and solution. I, of course, I can solve the Rubik's Cube, but I'm going face to think, well, why are you doing that? Well, because some children in the Chinese children's church, uh, they have Rubik's Cubes. Well, I can't let those children show me up. I need to be able to do it. And so at home, I was practicing, and I realized, wow, once you think in solution, The Rubik's Cube, the whole point is most people try to solve the Rubik's Cube and cannot because they see it as a problem. You understand? You look at, oh, this is a problem. I don't know how to get all the colors and every time I try, this color flips around and it's not in the right place. That's because you're addressing it from a problematic standpoint. But when you learn how to solve the cube that I learned when I was young, my record is 45 seconds to solve the entire cube, which before you get excited, the world record is like seven seconds or something like that. Insane. To watch them do it, it's like, they look like little machines. And to be fair, that kind of record only happens when some solutions are accidentally in place. But in competition, that's not your problem if it happens to be, and that's how the world records are. When I was a young boy, the world record was 14 seconds. But the more people look at it and say, this thing is about mastering the Rubik's Cube is you learn solutions. You don't study problems. You don't address it as a problem. You only see solutions. So any problem you face, and as I was teaching one of the kids in church, he wanted to know, can you show me how to do it? And he was just To him, his goal was just make all one side, one color. How many of you ever do that with the Rubik's Cube? Really, I just want to make all blue. But that is creating another problem. And that is not a solution. And it does nothing. In fact, it's wasting your time. Because there's a solution, but it's not what you think. And I see so many analogies in the Rubik's Cube that you can make one face look good and say it's solved, but actually there's a deeper pattern that you need to learn. And I believe that every one of the patterns of the solution of the Rubik's Cube of life are written in God's holy word. So if we look up, if we're risen with Christ, we keep our gaze up, Looking into his word and the patterns of the word, and we keep the Bible in our mind, it gives us a book of solutions all the time. And to be fair, I did not first solve the Rubik's Cube when I was a young boy by my intelligence. I had a book. And in that book, very clearly, step by step, it showed you the solutions. And so for me, that Rubik's Cube solution book was just like the Bible. Now, everybody had access to that book, as popular as was The Cube in the 1970s and 80s, so actually 80s, so was The Book of Solutions, one of the top-selling books. It was like on the New York Times bestseller list. Because people are so obsessed with that stupid cube. It makes the, the fidget spinner look like nothing. I mean, I'm telling you, when Rubik's Cube hit the world, it was everywhere. And that book was a top-selling book. And I bought the book, and I learned it. And that's exactly how I live my life. If there's a problem, I don't look at the problem. I look at the solution book. I go straight to the solutions, and it gives me a pattern. And what's cool is after you learn the pattern... You don't even look at the cube anymore. And that's how I solve the cube. I can watch TV, look down once at the cube and watch TV, and my hands just do the patterns from memorization. And every once in a while, I'll know when I get finished at a certain pattern because that pattern is like 32 steps. And I do it quickly, so it's... And I'm laughing at the TV and watch, (laughs) and I know when it comes to an end, and I look again, and I know the next solution. And I find that the more I study the solutions and practice the solutions, uh, the less I have to even look at the cube. And so that's exactly what life is like lived in the word of God in this world. Don't think problems. Oh, we're going to roll the stone away. Well, if you'd been looking up, you'd see the stone has already rolled away. God wants to give you solutions. Amen. And his word is rich and full of them. So the messengers of God, that are there they see this young man so they say that in white right this person is in there we know that this is an angel and uh they have a conversation actually on the scene i studied this very early this morning i got up and i was reviewing everything in the people if you look at the resurrection sunday morning as a movie uh then you will see all of the components or the actors in the drama and you had Of course, Jesus, the star, uh, who didn't have a lot of lines until after. Uh, Of course, Friday, Saturday, uh, Sunday, he was very busy on those days, but he just was not busy in a visual realm that we have. He was busy doing what he does. But on Sunday morning, he's there, then you have these women, then you have angels, and then you have the enemy. And it's while looking at each role that each played here. I decided to focus on this for us. And what caught my eyes are the angels because the angels were very active that morning. They were showing up, doing different things, saying different things. And then later, Jesus actually showed up. But at this point, it's just an angel talking to them. And how many of you know that angels in the word of God are messengers? Uh, Angels bring God's messages to us. Specifically, Gabriel, we see uh, in the Bible, Michael, the archangel. Some angels are actually named. There are many thousands and millions of angels that are not named. We don't know. There are some demon fallen angels that are named in the Bible we see, Uh, but there are Specific angels that have names, they and all of them, however, do the same thing. They bring messages like curse, so they bring good news to us the news of truth. They bring the news, and so. In the words that the angel is about to speak to them, I found an interesting pattern. First, I want to look at the whole passage there of, go to the next slide, seven things the angel told us. Now, they're all embedded in this, but we're going to break them down. Uh, Mark chapter 16, this is verses six and seven. He says, don't be alarmed. He said, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, when I looked at this passage, I noticed seven things that the angel is telling them very clear. There are other things, but I've compartmentalized these seven different things. And that's really my message tonight that I want to share with you and share some insights about it, Amen. How many of you are interested in hearing this? Father, I pray tonight that we would hear every word that you want to speak to us. Your messenger came 2000 years ago and he gave a message to those women when they came to behold the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. And I believe that what the angel said then is valid for us today. So the pattern that you revealed to me in this message, Lord, let it minister to our hearts and our minds and our imaginations to help us live a problem-solving life by focused always on the solutions that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So number one, don't be alarmed. Now, this is interesting because I did some counting in the Bible, and this is the same as fear not. Uh, Don't be alarmed. Fear not. 63 times in the Bible, it says fear not. And I started thinking, wow, it says fear not more than it does be happy or be blessed. It says fear not, in fact, more than most things said at all in the Bible. And one of the reasons is because we always fear. We always fear. Fear is a predilection of humanity, fear is an instinct of us all. There's one thing to fear things that you should be afraid of. There's nothing wrong with fearing a dog, a dog growling at you and snapping. That's logical. It's, it's okay to fear uh, heights because you can fall to your death. Recently, I felt so bad. This beautiful young college girl in America climbed a bell tower to take pictures for Instagram, and in there she slipped and fell to her death. And I thought, wow, you know, that's horrible. She, she should have been more careful. But there's fear. I know I, I don't like heights. If I go to a place, I uh, have ever been to an observation deck. Uh, Like recently, I had never gone, but my friend was here and he insisted that we go on top of the Marina Base Sands to that observation deck. I know that the barrier is pretty secure, but I don't go shoving on it. You know what I'm saying? It's like something in me, when I go to those barriers, I like tap them a little and I'm careful. But there's no way it would be so easy to push that I could just push my way through. But something in me says, don't do that because of fear. But that's not bad fear. That's good fear that that keeps us alive. But bad fear is irrational. This is how you know the difference between fear that will keep you and fear that is of the enemy. The enemy's fear is irrational. If you suddenly feel fear and you don't even know why, I'll guarantee you that's usually the enemy working on you. If you fear, feel fear because there's a snake in your kitchen, all right, that's a different kind of fear. That's not the enemy working on you. That's a snake in your kitchen. Some people are afraid of cockroaches, you know, the big outside cockroaches. My mother's greatest fear on earth was her big bouffant hairdo getting cockroaches stuck in it. My mother bought. Uh, I hope she's not watching. I love you, mommy. She, she bought cases of Aquanet. Aquanet was this product, this aerosol can that I'm sure gave people cancer. It was a big can and it like lacquer. I mean, my mother would spray this stuff. And so basically she made a big glue trap of her hair. And sure enough, wherever we would go during the summer months, cockroaches would, you know, when they're flying and they make that nasty sound. and it seemed like they would go right into that glue trap, and my mother would do the same dance. Ah! Like, jumping around, throwing things, slapping her head, and, of course, I would laugh, and later get slapped for laughing. (laughs) It was the 1960s. You just slapped children's faces. It's not like today. Back then, you just... One time, I tricked my mother. I put a seashell, uh, one of those two-sided seashells, way up on a high shelf, and I had a piece of uh, actuating cable from a lawnmower that ran the throttle, and I had dismantled it because I like taking things apart, and I ran it up behind the bookshelf and connected the two points to the back of this big giant clam so that I could remotely open and close the clam and the, the control is down at the bottom and I said mommy can you help me I, I need to get something on the top shelf she says why can't you get it yourself I said I don't know can you help me she gets up there think about how stupid kids are she gets up there balancing on a stool all the way to the top shelf whereby she looks over and this clam shelf there where I, where I go clunk and it opens up and she, ah! she screams she jumps off the stool. Thank God she didn't hurt herself. And she looked at me with the mischievous look on my face with that little control. And, of course, the first thing she did was snap. I mean, she slapped me right across the face. Back then, I didn't even know there was child services. But I was shocked. I was just shocked. Mom, you slapped me. But how many of you think she had every right to slap me? That's that just by being startled. But anyway, the Bible says fear not 63 times. It's always from God to man, mostly spoken by prophets and angels. But one of the main messages angels always bring are fear not. Whenever they show up, why? Because angels can be scary, I guess. I've never seen an angel come in and present himself, but it would be a fearful thing, I suppose. I don't think that he has wings. Everybody thinks the angel has wings. There's no seraphim have wings, but angels do not. Angels look like people. But apparently they're pretty intimidating. Sometimes they have flaming swords. Sometimes, you know, there's the biblical references to angels doing all kinds of scary things, but mostly they are bringing a message from God to tell us in our moment of fear not to be afraid. And I will receive that message just like they had to receive message. It just seems to be a prevailing message. Now, so fear not, only believe. Remember, that's exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said that to Jairus. Uh, Jairus came in all faith believing that Jesus could heal his daughter who was sick. And he agreed and said, I can do that. He goes with her to heal her daughter. That's when the woman with the issue of blood actually stole that power out of Jesus that he was carrying to heal Jairus' daughter. In the meantime, however, after that, they came from Jairus' house and said, don't bother the master, your your daughter is dead. Whereby Jesus said, "Uh, fear not. He said, uh, only believe. And that's really the solution to fear. We just need to believe. If there's a problem in life, there's an issue in life. If you have studied the book enough, you already know there are solutions. If you've not studied the chapter of the book that gives you some of the sequences to solving the Rubik's Cube, well, that's your fault, not God's fault. You just need to spend more time reading the Bible. But I believe all the solutions are there. I love where I am in my life right now and all the years that I've read the Bible because it's like having the, the solution book almost memorized. I, I Immediately, if I, I confront some issue in life, and I realize that in fact is Christian maturity. Uh, maturity as a believer in Christ and in the kingdom of God is just knowing the word when you know it you can live it and do it and it'll it'll rescue you it'll set you free and that's why i always say please keep reading god's word don't be alarmed fear not and of course jairus's daughter was raised from the dead because he was in good company and he stayed close to jesus and went the whole way let's go to the second one number two they say you are looking for jesus the nazarene who was crucified now why does he tell him? You notice this is interesting because he's not asking them. It seems like it should be a question, right? Like, are you looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified? No, because they knew who they were looking for, the angel knew who they were looking for. So it struck me as interesting that he would state the obvious. You are looking for Jesus. Because God responds to those that are seeking, and God confirms those that are seeking. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And so I ask, if you're confronting problems in life, are you looking for the risen king? Or are you looking for a dead master? Well, they were looking for Jesus, but it was really, what was the identity that they had in their minds of Jesus? And that's why he says, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was, past tense, crucified And he's building up to something, but I like the fact that he told them, this is, don't forget, he's basically saying, uh, reminding them of their purpose, what they had come for. They were startled, they lost their focus. First of all, they went, they were going to find the physical Jesus who may have been dead, but that they could not find it. So now the stone's removed. He's not there. Somebody stole Jesus and they're startled and the angels having to tell him, look, don't forget your mission. You're looking for Jesus because life will cause us to lose our focus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to us. We're supposed to live every day of our life looking for Jesus. I find that the days I'm not looking for Jesus are pretty miserable days. I may have a limited amount of fun in this world, but ultimately, if I don't take the time to look for Jesus and keep my focus, I will have issues in my life. I will have trouble that will arise. And when that trouble arises, I don't have clear solutions. I want to stay with Jesus. I want to look for Jesus. I don't mind the angel reminding me. Remember, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. Remember, I'm going to text you sometime and tell you that. Remember, you're looking for Jesus. And you can text me back, private message me, put it on faith. You're looking for Jesus. That's a good quote. You're looking for Jesus. In fact, everybody's looking for Jesus. They don't always understand that that's what they're looking for. Everybody's looking for Jesus. They're misguided. They're deceived. They think they're looking for something else. An atheist is looking for Jesus. That's what he's looking. He's looking to solve some issues in his life that only Jesus can solve. He just simply doesn't know it. And I like that part of the angel's message. Next, he goes on, number three, he says, He has risen. I'm going to view it as distracted as I am by the aromas of that food. That's really hard, man. Gosh, Barbara, what are you doing back there? Actually, that is another memory that it conjures up, which is an Easter. Uh, Easter Sunday memory, we always had delicious food in the houses. And even when I lived in my pastor's house too, my pastor's wife would make this huge Sunday. But anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent with the food. We'll get to that after. He has risen. Good words. Simply put. He told them that Jesus was risen from the dead because they would never have concluded that on their own. He had to tell them. Why didn't they say, well, he must be risen? Because honestly, I don't think it even occurred to them. That's why they didn't say, well, he's risen. That's why he's not here. No, they said somebody stole his body. Because to them to think in terms of the supernatural fact of resurrection of a dead body was impossible. It's just that's not possible. Even when, remember when uh, Martha was talking to Jesus about Lazarus and and said that, you know, if you had been here, he would have lived. But I know, she stretched a little further her faith and said, but I know that anything is possible for you. And Jesus said, yeah, you're right. He's going to live. Oh, well, I know that he's going to live in the resurrection. And she meant at the end of the age of time, when everything is complete and the dead rise in Christ, uh, that I know that. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. I am the resurrection. And when he informed her of that, she mixed her faith with him and believe and of course as a result Lazarus was risen from the dead because the resurrection himself brought the power to bring that preemptively active in his life before he even needed that power for his own resurrection he employed it to raise the dead while he was on earth and they're looking for a dead person but the angels having to inform them he has risen uh in fact, they supposed that somebody had stolen the body, but they didn't. So we have, we have to be reminded of the resurrection. And this past Thursday, I, th- Thursday was a fun day for me biblically, devotionally. Uh, some of us were there at Kamyon, and I taught a message there on what they call Maundy Thursday. And I didn't even know it, Maundy Thursday was, they said, yeah, we want you to do the Monday-Thursday meeting. And I, of course, amen, hallelujah, praise God. And I went home. I had no idea. Like, what is a Monday-Thursday? And so I went and Googled it. And, you know, Wiki had it there. Wikipedia told me, I like Wikipedia, it helps me. And so I, I looked and read, oh, it comes from the term meaning foot washing, the actual washing. But it talks about the things that took place on that Thursday. So I said, okay, well, I just need to talk about the things that took place on Thursday. So I went to the chronology of the scriptures. And could easily triangulate exactly what took place from the first moment of the Thursday morning until the night when he was arrested after the betrayal of Judas when they came and took him. Turns out there was a lot of things happening in that day. Turns out it is one of the busiest days in the life of Jesus. So many things that we quote, we see, we believe. Uh, washing, the breaking of bread, washing of the feet, the 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 betrayal. The um, gosh, so many things, things I couldn't even cover in the message. Like a whole series could come out of that. In fact, I could easily teach a seven-hour series just from Thursday, the Thursday, the last day of Jesus's freedom. It's really cool, and. One of the things that I saw there was that Jesus had accepted the fact he was willing to give his life. And in being willing to give his life is because he had an understanding of suffering. He had an understanding of that path being necessary for him to fulfill the purposes of God. And so when I was studying that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention that, not the whole message from Thursday, but just specifically the three times Jesus predicted his death death. To prepare us because there are three times in the ministry of jesus over a three and a half year period when he told us the disciples that he was going to be crucified and really he came into this revelation i truly believe as soon as the holy spirit came upon him in the river jordan when the holy spirit came upon him he was now divinely cognizant of all the things, because that created the link between him and the Father. Just like we need the Holy Spirit, Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is who reveals to us everything that God has for us, everything that God needs for us to do, including suffering, including difficulties. Of course, we don't want to hear that. Nor did the disciples, and this is what caught my eye, the three times that Jesus, Jesus, first of all, was never successfully able to have them engage with him concerning this announcement that he would be handed over to sinners and abused and crucified and would die and rise again from the dead. He was never successful. He was never able to convince them. And so I started looking at it in our lives. There are moments that God comes to us and tries to prepare us for possible hard times. Of course, our prayer is that we never face hard times, but life is hard. Things can happen. And I believe if we're prepared, we can handle everything. However, I believe if we're not prepared, we can be blindsided by some pretty serious issues that may shake us to our core if we haven't sufficiently put our lives on a foundation. And Jesus wants us to know that. Well, we're, of course, very young in the faith. That's the first time that we see that when we are babies. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So this is the first time that Jesus is explaining to them. Let me tell you what was the catalyst for Jesus believing that it was okay to tell these these, these band of merry followers that are excited about Jesus. He kicked off his ministry with a thousand bottles of wine. I mean, we know that they're like, oh, we're going to follow this guy to our death. They're going with him. So he didn't he needed to know are they willing to receive this information and the signal to him was that it was time to introduce this is what precedes this in the verses just preceding this who do you say that i am and peter says you're the christ he says flesh and blood did not reveal that to you but my father in heaven oh i'm so glad because on this revelation, I will build the church. And so now you're ready to hear this information. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples this issue. He thought they were ready, but they weren't because Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Why would he be so so excited to say it like this? Never. Because instinctually, we want to preserve ourselves. Instinctually, we want to avoid any difficulties, any suffering. It's natural. We're not insane. Jesus was not insane either, by the way. In the moment of consecration, he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. He was not crazy. But he knew that that was his purpose and he would have to go that path. Peter was not ready for that. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So human concerns in the place of the concerns of God will cause you to stumble, is what Jesus is saying. In your path, which is a narrow path to go through that tiny little gate that Jesus said, that that. Many will try and will not. He says it's very difficult. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is that path. When we're on that path, human concerns will cause us to stumble on that road. The concerns of God will lead us. Human concerns are what Jesus is addressing because Peter said this will never happen. I will never allow you to suffer. Suffering is not of God. And that's where I get really conflicted about the hyper-prosperity message that God only is arranged perfect blessings for our lives. So I think we need to be ready. But obviously, they're not ready. And they're not ready to receive this. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't bring it up again for like a year. He says all kinds of parables, all kinds of teachings, all kinds of preaching in boats, on hills, in fields, demonstrating with seeds. He's teaching them all kinds of kingdom principles, but not this until a lot more time goes by. And finally, as an adolescent in Mark nine thirty, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. At this point, his ministry becomes so popular, and this is about midway through, so he took them apart so that he could teach them systematically, and he was teaching his disciples, and during that time, he said to them, he brings it up again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about they were afraid. And that is pretty much where when we're an adolescent in Christ, we're starting to get this and understand it. We know that it is a fact that only through much tribulation can we enter the kingdom, but we're a little afraid of the subject. So we really don't want to talk about it. And we don't want to ask God about it. God, can you tell me about suffering? You know, We don't go to the Lord in prayer, wanting him to teach us about suffering because we're afraid that he'll job us. Something, you know, that he's going to turn to the devil and say, you can have him. Go ahead. And I don't want that. I I, That's my least favorite book in the Bible. I can't stand that book, although I know I need it. Why? For the same reason, because I'm afraid and I don't want to ask about it. My daily reading, when we come around to Job every year, I'm like, oh no, Job is coming again. And I go back into it because usually when I'm reading it, I go through some type of Jobian thing. I don't want to do that. Maybe because I'm more of an adolescent. But they didn't understand. Although they had matured and grown a lot at this point, they still didn't comprehend it. So finally, the third time he says it is that last Thursday of his life as a free man. And it's as a mature child of God. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Now, if you precede this, Jesus was going to Jerusalem, meaning that this was Wednesday night. They went to sleep. They woke up the next morning, had breakfast, said, let's go, guys. And they're actually on the road Thursday morning, first thing on the way. He took the 12 aside. In other words, they were on the road, but he took them aside on the road. In other words, it's probably people going and coming. There was regular traffic, carts and donkeys and people and tr- tradesmen. And so he said, look, guys, come over here out of the way. They got off on the side of the road. He gathered them together. And they were ready for whatever he was going to say. And finally, the third time, he has to tell them one more time because this is it. It's the very day that he's gone. And he has to warn them. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, and asked a favor of him. Now, this is an interesting response to this. The son of man is going to be handed over. He's going to die. The third day is going to rise again. Oh, really? Oh, Jesus. Well, can, he, can we have these positions at the right and left of you? That's what an odd thing. And I started thinking about it. They totally still were not getting what he was saying. And that's why Jesus said, what? I just do You think you're going to be able to drink the cup that I have to drink from? And what did they say? Yes. You think they knew what kind of cup he was talking about? They knew basically, but come on, when the moment came, they all ran away. So they did not drink from that cup. They ran like scared dogs which was good. In fact, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. I imagine that sometimes they were simply subject to the prevailing emotions that God himself was putting upon them for the fulfillment of the divine plan. But in any case, they were not ready for this, not even in the last day that Jesus was on earth. In fact, they don't comprehend any of these things until finally the Holy Spirit came upon them in the second chapter of Acts. Then they were ready. They were ready to take up the cross, ready to follow Jesus, ready to do that. And, you know, they did. When Jesus said, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciples. I did a little research, and it's amazing to see that, uh, in fact, all of them. I'll see if I can find that list, because it's amazing. Uh, I quickly looked and saw that. um, Let me find the one where I had it. I think it's here. Of all the disciples that were with Jesus. Let me see if I can find the list. Give me a second. Nope, it's not there. But anyway, all of them, with the exception of John, were martyred. In history, uh, all of the disciples, with the exception of John and Judas, Judas killed himself, but all the rest of them died horrible deaths. John almost died. He was thrown into a vat of boiling oil, and he's miraculously survived, which scared the people, and they decided... This guy can't be killed. What do we do with him? And they put him on the island of Patmos as a political prisoner so he would be detached from anyone and wouldn't be able to preach to them. Uh, Thomas, we know, went to India where he was speared by four soldiers and died from his wounds for preaching the gospel. All of them actually did what Jesus said. All of them actually were martyred. And when we follow the example of Christ, we keep that in mind. That what Jesus did for us was an example for us to follow. He's leading us and guiding us. But we're going to see these problem solutions that he's giving us and understand that part of it will be that our path is not going to be easy. But if there is, in the Bible, there's no mention of a death and a burial without a resurrection. There's always a resurrection. so to keep focus, now we go back to what the angel says. Number four, he tells these ladies, he's not here. Of course, they're looking at a room where no one is, but he's having to tell them the obvious again. The angel told the women, he's not in the tomb. So sometimes we seek him where he is not and must be told that also by God. So when I was a boy, I know I was told a lot about religion in my life. Uh, I was instructed on structured prayer and laws. And I found that a lot of that was like a place of death. In fact, even as a Christian believer in Jesus, there were a lot of my pursuits that were religious and God could not be found in them. But I tried until I realized there are places that we can look for God that you're not going to find him. And it's really kind of enigmatic because we automatically think through some type of religious ritual, we're going to have an encounter with God. And that's not usually where we truly encounter him. I think one of the greatest revelations I ever got from God is one day I was in the United States on furlough. And I was ministering in some churches and I was out for a run. And as I was jogging, the Lord spoke to me and he said, where can I be found? He asked me that question. Where can I be found? And as I'm running, I said to the Lord, I said, um, in in prayer. And he said, no. I said, in worship. He said, no. I said, well, Sure. I said in 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 when you're fasting no in the word of God no he kept on saying no and I was really confused about this and he says I'll tell you I said please and he said he said to me very simply he said in he said at the end of your rope in the middle of the battle and in the depths of your heart and I thought that was strange because in relation to everything I was oriented to in my life, it was all about uh, religious duties to find him. And I found out that the place that we really find him, according to what he told me personally, was at the end of my rope. When he told me, I was, I'm was i very pictorial when he speaks to me. I see images. It wasn't just a rope. It was those little frazzly pieces that hang off the end of the rope. And that's what I was hanging on to. And it was unwinding and letting me down. and It was about to pop. And I realized that is when we meet him. When we're in the middle of the battle, that's where we meet him. Down in the depths of our heart and truth, we meet him. The angel said, he's not here. Sometimes it's hard when we go looking for God in a place. Even it can be, this can be prayer. This can be Bible study. This can be a church. We can go looking for God in some place. And realize that we can't find him there. And sometimes we need God himself to tell us through a messenger. He's not here. Number five, he says, see the place where they laid him. Now the angel wanted to prove that he was no longer dead by telling them to inspect the place where he had been laid. Sometimes we look back at where we have come from to understand the redemptive power of the resurrection of Jesus in our lives. We have a tendency to dwell in the place of death when Jesus is leading us into a place of life. So the angel has to say, see the place, don't you see? See the past, see death, see the places where he is not. Look, he was there, but he's not now, because no matter what circumstance or situation you go through and what kind of uh, adversity you've had to confront in your life, a time will come that you're delivered from it. Just recently, I've already recommended the book about being crushed by T.D. Jake's amazing, amazing book. I've just heard excerpts from it and have seen interviews, and it's probably one of the greatest books that we'll ever read. I'm looking forward to reading it myself. And it talks about this process. And he said that the analogy God gave him was grapes, and grapes are great, grapes are delicious, but they can become far more valuable if they're turned into wine. But for that to happen, they must be crushed. And he talks about the process that God uses that we all will be crushed. Everybody in the Bible was crushed. Something in life crushed them. Something that's not crushed cannot become more valuable in God's hands. And so it's not a popular subject, but it's a valid subject. And he said something very interesting in one of the interviews. He said that, see, a problem that a lot of people have is they never leave the wine press. The crushing hurt them so bad that they only had a vision for crushing. And in fact, they wallow in that place of suffering and they never get healed. They don't step out. They'll never become bottled and become wine. They'll never become valuable if they don't learn how to get out of the wine press. And what gets you out of the wine press is forgiveness and, and letting go. See the place where they laid him. He's not there anymore. Look in the wine press. You don't belong there. Look back. Whatever problems you had in your life, don't wear them. Don't carry them. Don't live in that moment. Just let it go and let the work be complete. Become what God has for you. Number six, he says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. Go tell them that. So he told them to proclaim the fact that he was risen. He tells us the same thing today. But really, the message of Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday is that we need to tell people that he is risen. Not so much the spectator uh, looking at the resurrection and thinking in a warm feeling in your heart that, oh, I'm so glad he rose. It is great to feel great about that, but it is our message. And that's why I like that the angel said, go tell. Now you know it, you accept it. They've accepted that Jesus in fact is risen. So what do we do with this information? The angel's helping them out again because that's why God sent the angel. Go tell. He tells us the same thing. All other religious figures and deities remained in their tombs. Some of them are still there. There are leaders of many religious groups that are still there. People make pilgrimages to go where they died to celebrate a dead body. But we don't have that. We don't have a place to go to. And yeah, you can go to the Holy Land and somebody will charge your money to take you to the tomb where Jesus was. It's not. Don't believe that. There's like 20 of them. And that's, you know, there's there's all this. They don't know. There's a lot of things they don't know, but If you believe that that's the actual tomb, then you also probably be interested in buying a splinter from the old rugged cross and a vial of Jordan water. Before you know you have all these little things, all we need to do is go tell the truth. Number seven, we're going to finish with this. There you will see him, just as he told you. You will see him. He told them they would have an encounter with Jesus. And this is perhaps the most exciting thing about all that the angel says to them. You will see him. You will experience him for yourself. I'm telling you tonight, you're going to see him. You're going to you're going to touch him. He's going to touch you. You're going to live with him. Of course we're going to see him in eternity, but here and now in life we're going to experience him. This morning in the church I said that you know a lot of people think well, how can we can we actually see Jesus? Is it possible? And I say it is possible. It's interesting. In Indonesia, I have met many people that have actually seen Jesus. You say, who? I, I heard testimonies at first that Jesus was randomly showing up in um, different places religious institutions specifically, even some mosques that he would show up and people would have a vision of actual Jesus that would tell them who he was. Uh, But I had trouble believing that. The first account I heard of it being a fact was through a guy named Teddy. Teddy was a professional basketball player from Indonesia, an Indonesian basketball player, the tallest Indonesian I ever met. Of course, he's a basketball player. And he was my interpreter from times that I was ministering in that part near Surabaya. Really great guy. We got along great. In fact, I've never worked with an interpreter that didn't want to work with me again because they get to channel the anointing on my ministry. And they get so thrilled by it. I did a crusade one time in a basketball stadium in, in, um, in Jakarta. And my interpreter was so happy to interpret for me that as he was interpreting, I had a short message to a whole stadium full of unbelievers And it was a college thing where they all come together because some artists came to perform on stage. And the the musical artists that came were actually secular artists who were Christians and also did Christian music that were quite famous. And So the outreach was a concert where you could come and hear these people free. And it was in a university. So thousands came. And I was the speaker that was given 10 minutes and believe me, I took it seriously. I begged, God prayed, fasted. Oh God, I need your anointing. I need you. And I, I maybe I don't know. Maybe I overdid it a little because I said I wanted to be so strong, God, that nobody could stand. You know, you, we say that, but God is quite literal about things like that. And we we went up a, a ladder, and my interpreter went up first. And already on the platform, there's actually, it was a ladder, not so much a staircase, as a ladder that went to this big high uh, platform in the stadium, in the, in the basketball arena so that you could get high enough that everybody could see you. And so we had to climb up there and my interpreter climbed, but up on the platform, already a cloud of the glory of God had formed. I mean, God himself came before we were even up there and was just hovering over the stage. So when my interpreter got to the top of the ladder, he started like bucking and doing this. He literally started falling down the ladder. I got up behind him. I put my hand on the small of his back and I said, hold it together, man, get up there, get up there. And he got up on the stage and he was literally like, just couldn't stand. And I said, look, relax, look at me. I had to shake him, look in my eyes. And I remember when I was doing it, everything around was blurry. Because in the real glory of God, your vision narrows to a very small space. And I could see him. He could see me. I said, I need you to focus. I said, stand up, man. You need to do this. He said, okay, okay. (laughs) He says, how how can you stand this? And I said, just enjoy it. And we preached. And sure enough, uh, thousands that night raise their hand to receive Jesus it was a great because God was there it was so thick and so powerful and then right after that the concert started and the music came and I don't know how many souls were retained in that event but I know God was there the anointing was flowing and so this guy an interpreter st- told me a story of a friend of his that he met that was actually one who saw Jesus show up in the middle of a, of a mosque And this guy uh, that he knew that was his friend was a very scary, in fact, a scary cleric or leader because he was anti-Christian. And that guy's radical turnaround was so wild that the, the, the people wanted to kill him. Because now all of a sudden, and he was very influential and powerful, and he's telling everybody that, yeah, Jesus showed up. In fact, when he showed up, he went, Jesus told him to go meet some of my people. So he went to the main city to go find someone. He went into a popular Christian church and everybody knew who he was. He was notorious and showed up in the church and the pastor just was petrified. Why is he here? Oh no, it's the end. And he said, I'm looking for Jesus. Like He literally just came in and said, I'm looking for Jesus. And the pastor said, uh, uh, okay, we're getting ready for the meeting. And it was weird because at that moment he was facing the front of the church and, the, man, and he, the pastor said, just wait here, sir. Wait here for a little while, and then I'll get I'll get right with you. And he turned around, and when he turned around to go sit in the back of the church, there was actually a picture of Jesus, like an artist's rendition of it. And the guy said, him. He says, that guy. That's Jesus. He said, where is he? He's like looking for him physically again. And the pastor had to explain to him, though, no, what you saw was Jesus physically, but he doesn't actually come to our church like that. And of course, the, the pastor was jealous. Like, wow. That was the first real one I heard about. But then I heard several other stories. And the most impressive, and I'm going to end with the story because uh, I love sharing it. I was in Indonesia, in Yogyakarta. And I went to a ministry, and a little girl ran up to me. A little bitty girl. And she looked at me. She looked at me like she was scoping me out, trying to figure out who I was, which is exactly what she was doing. And she came to me, and she took my hand. When she took my hand, she looked in my eyes. And I got a creepy feeling, like, why are you doing that, little girl? And as she looked in my eyes, she smiled. She picked up my hand, and she even put her face on my hand, and she smelled me. And she said, you smell like him. And I don't know what's going on, right? I don't know. I've never seen this girl in my life and she smiles and she turns while holding my hand and looks at the pastor who's coming over alarmed like what's going on he says he he knows him he knows him he's friends with him you're friends with him and I said yeah and so who who am I talking who are we talking about I'm just trying to entertain a little girl the pastor then explained to me the story of this little girl Uh, this little girl was from a strictly uh, Muslim background Islamic family uh, good people moral people raising their little girl, and one night she went to bed and Jesus was standing in her bedroom and sat on the edge of her bed and began to tell her about himself. That was the first night. She fell asleep in a great peace. She woke up the next day. She didn't tell anybody. That night Jesus came again and continued the story. He did it for several nights, for weeks in fact whereby she learned the entire story. Understand, she had no access to any of this information outside of the actual physical Jesus that came and taught her. And then it went on for weeks. Until one morning over breakfast, she was talking, and her parents made reference to something, and she said something of the fact that, well, she quoted something Jesus said. And they knew that this little girl could not possibly possess this information. She's like seven years old. So they want to know, what what are what are you talking about? And he said, well, the man in my room taught me that. And they were like, the man in your room? Like, of course, parents, what would you do? If Todd come up to you, you know, it says like, the man in my room told me that. You would freak out. You'd go in there with a baseball bat. But they calmed down and she explained to them who and why and that it was Jesus and began to teach them what she was taught. And they received Jesus because they knew there was no way she'd have all this information so clear, so perfect. She knew the whole gospel. And then, they, of course, now they're in danger because they can't exactly tell someone in their, in their realm. So they went to a church, and that's where some friends of mine, good friends of mine that are still there now, uh, met them. And the problem with this little girl is that she met a lot of pastors and would go up to them, the visiting speakers, and would meet them and look at them and get angry and tell them, you don't even know him. Ouch. And that's why the pastors worried, because she had a reputation for going up to guest speakers and telling them that they did not know him. Now, when I heard this, I was so, whew, I was so happy I smell like Jesus, because I do know him. He is my best friend. And I would say to this day, that is the greatest confirmation from an external source of who I know. Still to this day, I feel this wonderful feeling, knowing, I was so happy. I didn't need her to say that, but it sure felt good. I do know him, honey, and you know him, and he is wonderful. In that time I was there, I laid hands and prayed for her parents. I prayed for her, and the glory of God consumed us. When I prayed for them, so much power came through me that I could not stand any longer. They had to sit me down. I was on my knees shaking. When I laid on them, they both looked like they were electrocuted on the ground as the glory of God went into them. Beautiful to see. You will see him. He can be seen. Why not ask? How how could it hurt us if he actually did? Would you like that your children had Jesus sit on the edge of their bed and tell them, do you think that girl is ever going to be challenged in her faith about who Jesus is? I don't imagine that ever happening. Jesus. These are the seven things we saw. The angel said, don't be alarmed. Reminded them, you're looking for Jesus. He said, he has risen. Number four, he's not here. Number five, see the place where they laid him hindsight is okay look back at the wine press don't live there move on but go tell if you know resurrection you experience it you're gonna have to tell somebody a first thing that they're told to do and you will see him amen why don't we